At this point, Harry knows Professor Umbridge like the back of his hand. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for disciplinarians. Now, you are going to be doing some lines for me, Mr. Potter. No, not with your quill. You're going to be using a rather special one of mine. Here you are. I want you to write, I must not tell lies. How many times? Oh, as long as it takes for the message to sink in. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And here we are in possibly the worst chapter in the series. <laughs> um, one of the most upsetting. This week we read Detention with Dolores and Percy and Padfoot. In this podcast, and this episode in particular, based on the subject matter, you will hear lots of cursing and spoilers. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are corporal punishment, the glass cliff, procrastination, hotheads, and epistolary storytelling. Now, Alex, can you tell us what happened this week? In this week's chapters, everyone is gossiping about Harry's fight with Umbridge it's not clear that everyone really believes Harry's story about dueling with Voldemort in the graveyard. Fred and George are testing their products on first years. Hermione threatens to tell their mom, which Fred and George see as way below the belt. Hermione has also taken up knitting. She's knitting hats and socks too? I think just hats right now. Yeah, she's knitting hats uh, and leaving them under piles of garbage to attempt to liberate the house elves. So Hermione is using increasingly extreme tactics in her war for house elf liberation. Everyone continues to get lectured in their classes about the importance of OWLs. The gang feeds a bunch of woodlice to Bowtruckles in Care of Magical Creatures class, which is being taught by Professor Grubblyplank because Hagrid is still a wall. Harry asks Grubblyplank, where's Hagrid? And she responds with her go-to catchphrase, never you mind. Is that what she sounds like? Well, that's how Jim Dale does it. <laughs> never you mind, child. Um, I mean, she's not a hundred. I don't think that's how Jim Dale does it. I don't think he sounds like a wizened old guru on a mountain. All right, well, luckily we have the audio. Let's go to the tape. Where's Hagrid, he asked her, while everyone else was choosing bow truckles. Never you mind, said Professor Grubblyplank repressively. <laughs> Keeper tryouts are coming up. This year's Quidditch captain is Angelina Johnson. She is working very hard to fill... Oliver Wood's extremely baggy robes. He's broad in the shoulders. Angelina wants the entire team to be there for keeper tryouts so that they can find someone who will fit seamlessly with the team, even though the position is functionally irrelevant. But Harry has detention. Angelina says, you better ask Professor Umbridge if you can get out of it. So Professor Umbridge, of course, is not only no, but hell no. Harry starts detention with Dolores, title of the chapter. Professor Umbridge's office is filled with doilies and decorative plates on the wall that have but 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 motherfucking technicolored kittens wearing bows on them. So Harry stares in disbelief for several moments at Professor Umbridge's kitten gifts. He's horrified by them? He finds them foul. <laughs> I'm imagining them like Lisa Frank illustrations. Okay, I actually think yeah. they sound pretty sick. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question, though. Why doesn't Dolores have a real cat? This is how we know she's bad. Yeah, even it's like President Trump not having a pet. Even Filch has an animal that he communes with, but she just likes the kitten aesthetic. <laughs> not, not necessarily any live any, any creature that to care for. But anyway... Professor Umbridge has Harry do lines, but not just any lines. He's given a special quill that cuts the sentence he's writing into the back of his hand. And writes with his blood. Yeah, so that's pretty fucking, like, grotesque. Yeah, it's like out of, like, a horror movie. Ugh. Anyway, Harry has to write the line, I must not tell lies, over and over again until the message sinks in. So Harry has to carve 
words into his hand every night all week. Until, like, midnight, yeah. too. Like, for hours and hours. Ugh. After one of his lovely detentions with Professor Umbridge, Harry runs into Ron in the corridors after hours. It turns out that Ron has been secretly practicing Quidditch. He's going to try out for Keeper. Ron seems a little embarrassed by it, or, you know, he's, like, nervous. But Harry thinks it's a cool idea, because Harry wants his best mate on the team. On Harry's last detention, Harry doesn't tell anybody what's going on in detention. He keeps it a secret, because he doesn't want to give Professor Umbridge the pleasure of him complaining. So he's locked in this battle of wills. On the last night of detention, which coincides with Keeper tryouts, which Harry tries to kind of sneak glimpses of through the window. Umbridge asks to see the back of Harry's hand, and when she touches him, his scar hurts, which freaks him the fuck out, because his scar obviously is a fucking connection to Voldemort, so that's weird. Umbridge is satisfied with Harry's progress. Do the words appear, like, faintly on his hand at this point? They're I think so. dug yeah. into, not like, faintly, they're like cut deep into his hand. Ugh. She says it's oozing blood. Turns out that Ron, in the meantime, made the team. Angelina tells Harry that Ron is only okay, but the other two people trying out weren't like great culture fits or <laughs> whatever. Harry writes a letter to Sirius telling him that his scar hurt, and he runs into Cho in the Owlry. So they have... A less awkward encounter than usual, Cho tells Harry he's really brave for standing up to Professor Umbridge, but then Harry's reverie is broken up by Filch and his wife, Mrs. Norris, coming into the Owlry. Filch accuses Harry of placing an order for dung bombs, and he wants to see his letter, whatever Harry's about to send. Cho defends Harry and says he already sent the letter. So Filch is unable to intercept Harry's mails. Hermione is continuing to take the Daily Prophet. There's a story about Sirius being sighted in London. Also, Sturgis Podmore, who was supposed to escort the kids to Platform 9 and 3 quarters, was arrested that same day trying to break into the Ministry of Magic. So the plot thickens. Actually, I think he was arrested inside the Ministry of Magic trying to... Uh, break into the Department of Mysteries. Yeah, whoa. So, that's a mystery. Anyway, he's not talking. I can't say he pleads the fifth, because there is no wizarding constitution that I'm aware of. It's probably an unwritten constitution. The first Quidditch practice is a disaster. Ron was pretty good when he was practicing on his own with Harry, but he gets rattled by the Slytherins who were chanting, Gryffindor are losers. Slytherin really needs to up their insult game. It's like very Biff Tannen. It's very like, what, butthead? <laughs> like, come on, guys. Like, how are they, how is Gryffindor even rattled by this? I don't know. I wish they said butthead. That's way funnier. <laughs> Make like a bow truckle and leave. <laughs> I liked that a lot. Katie Bell almost bleeds out after she gets struck in the face with a quaffle and Fred and George accidentally give her a nosebleed nougat, not the anti-nosebleed nougat. So Quidditch practice ends in total disarray. Ron gets a letter from Percy containing life and career advice. Percy's very pleased that Ron has been picked a prefect, following in his footsteps, but he tells him to stop hanging around Harry Potter and that his loyalty should lie with the Ministry, and that Dumbledore is probably not long for the headmaster position at Hogwarts, and that if Ron is serious about his future, he should think about where his loyalties lay. P.S. I'm a huge douchebag, Percy Weasley. Ron rips up the letter, then Sirius turns up in the fireplace. He's placed a fire call, or whatever the fuck this wizarding technology is called. He's been, like, checking in every hour or so to wait for Harry and Ron and Hermione to be alone in the common room. He tells them that Umbridge isn't a Death Eater, but that she's this hardcore wizard reactionary who has authored a bunch of anti-werewolf legislation and other laws restricting the activities of part humans. He says that the reason they're not being allowed to practice spells in defense against the Dark Arts is because Fudge is paranoid that Dumbledore is 
building a student army to overthrow the ministry. Also, Hagrid still hasn't returned from whatever errand Dumbledore sent him on. He and Madame Maxime got separated. But Sirius doesn't seem that concerned. Sirius floats the idea of meeting up with the Golden Trio in Hogsmeade like they did during Prisoner of Azkaban. Wasn't that a fun romp? Harry says, no way. You've already been spotted in London. It really seems like the Malfoys know that you're hanging around the Order of the Phoenix. No way. Sirius is very put off and says, you're nothing like James! And then disappears in, I'm assuming, like a puff of smoke. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. As we mentioned at the top of the show, this chapter on the detention is among the most upsetting scenes that we've had, I think, thus far in the books. Yeah. This is literal torture. <laughs> she is torturing him in detention. Can you imagine? I No, I mean, I can't imagine being in any of these situations, but this one in particular. Yeah, no, it's the level of horror that Harry must feel to be subjected to this. I literally can't imagine. Harry raised the sharp black quill and then realized what was missing. You haven't given me any ink. He said, Oh, you won't need ink, said Professor Umbridge with the merest suggestion of a laugh in her voice. Harry placed the point of the quill on the paper and wrote, I must not tell lies. He let out a gasp of pain. The words had appeared on the parchment in what appeared to be shining red ink. At the same time, the words had appeared on the back of Harry's right hand, cut into his skin as though traced there by a scalpel. Yet, even as he stared at the shining cut, the skin healed over again, leaving the place where it had been slightly redder than before, but quite smooth. Harry looked around at Umbridge. She was watching him, her wide, toad-like mouth stretched in a smile. Yes? Nothing, said Harry quietly. He looked back at the parchment, placed the quill upon it once more, wrote, I must not tell lies, and felt the searing pain on the back of his hand for a second time. Once again the words had been cut into his skin. Once again they healed over seconds later. And on it went. Again and again Harry wrote the words on the parchment in what he soon came to realize was not ink, but his own blood. It really is one of the most memorable scenes in the whole series and images with the black quill, the writing in blood, against the backdrop of the doilies and the cats. It's just very unsettling, and the sheer physical horror of it is great, and we actually haven't had that many moments like this so far. Yeah, like, spiders are terrifying, but... Well, he was tortured in the graveyard, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's a really just an alarming amount of torture in these books about children. <laughs> well, so the physical horror here is great, but there's also the psychological terror of being forced to write, I must not tell lies. It's very Orwellian. Dolores Umbridge is straight out of the Ministry of Truth. Right, because not only is she doing this disgusting, painful thing, it just in cutting into his hand, but she's forcing him to cut into his own skin something that is inaccurate and is warping reality. Because the thing is, he didn't tell lies. What she's punishing him for, like, okay, so even if he had done something fairly egregious in class, like, this is an unacceptable punishment, period, but, like, just the, the total dismissing of the reality and, and trying to turn his mind, like, against itself. That's what oppressive governments do, right? Or any kind of abuser, really. They force you to deny your own reality, despite everything in front of you. Like, who are you going to believe? Your lying eyes. So, and not only do they force you to deny reality, they like, they, they twist it. Like, I must not tell lies. Well, of course you shouldn't tell lies. They co-opt or appropriate virtuous statements and put them to nefarious ends. So. Right. The other thing that she's doing is forcing Harry to bear this constant reminder of the kind of reality that she's trying to enforce upon him because she's literally scarring him. Yeah. So she's forcing him to constantly carry around this badge of 
shame and and try and and literally sinking the shame into his skin and the many levels of torture and abuse that she's subjecting him to here are so much more disturbing even than the Dursleys because you kind of know what the Dursleys are about Mm -hmm. like they just don't like him but the what she's doing is so beyond having like a personal distaste for him he even says he's like oh Umbridge might give Snape a run for his money and it's like dude she's so much fucking worse than Snape. way worse. Snape is unfair. Snape is you understand what the deal is with Snape. Right. Her the twistedness of Umbridge's mind is so far beyond like honestly anything we've seen before. Right. Like Snape is like transparent in his hatred of Harry Potter, but Umbridge is very much like, "No, I'm doing you a favor." Right. And she Snape isn't trying to break Harry. He just fucking doesn't like him. I think he's kind of trying to break Harry. Yeah, but in a not in the total like he loved Big Brother kind of way. Yeah. I mean, even when he asks to take time off for Quidditch practice, her response is very like, well, that wouldn't be for your own good, now would it? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't learn anything if you weren't making sacrifices. It's just, it's very, very ominous and upsetting. Ministry of love. Yeah, exactly. So I think this links to why do we think Harry doesn't, tell what's happening to him because part of abuse is getting the person to keep it a secret yeah it it has those really chilling overtones to it because it happens in secret you you know there's only two witnesses here he clearly has like proof but he doesn't want to share i think well harry himself says it's like a battle of wills he doesn't want to give umbridge the satisfaction but I also think he's worried about making it worse for himself. You know, the uh, the amount of power Umbridge has isn't quite cleared yet. Even McGonagall is, like, cautious with Umbridge. So Harry's still trying to feel this out a little bit. I just wonder, though, like, you know, this is one of those moments where, and there are a lot of these in the Harry Potter universe, where you're just like, tell a grown-up, tell a grown-up, tell a fucking grown-up, oh my god, tell a grown-up. But first of all, it's a grown-up inflicting it. A grown-up in a position of power and trust, presumably. But Harry's inability to share with adults what he's going through comes back to bite him like over and over and over. But what my curiosity is here is like, we have Dumbledore, who we've barely seen in this book. And he's deliberately and cruelly ignoring and neglecting Harry. But like, I just wonder how much he knows about who Umbridge is and what she's capable of. Because my assumption is a lot. And he is doing nothing to protect the students from her predilections. I think he's walking a tightrope. I get that. But I just, it's just another, I mean, it'd be one thing if this was the first time. But it's just another example of like Dumbledore's fundamental inability to keep children safe. I know. Well, that's that's the moral question about Dumbledore, right? He's playing this long game. But in the meantime, he's hurting people, a lot of people. The other thing we don't know is whether Umbridge does this to anyone else. We have no idea what Umbridge's interactions with other students are like. I know Harry is like a particular, or is like the particular target of hers. Yeah. But now we know what she's capable of. In and the, In the movie, it's strongly suggested that she does. But, because there's a scene where Fred and George are comforting a kid who has like the lines etched in his arm. But I don't. This is a reread podcast, so I don't remember whether or not she deploys this in the books on other students. We at very least know now that this is something that she's capable of and that this is like a tool that she uses. Another thought I had about why Harry might not tell is that Umbridge might want him to do that and just say, this kid's lying. This is an insane story. Well, and that would add to her ammunition. And Mm -hmm. I think you're right that Harry does sense telling might dig me deeper into a hole right it might be part of her game that's what's so fucked up about this is she's removing all of his access to help by subjecting him to this well that's that's great story construction on Rowling's part I think in this case I do too I just I guess the problem I have here is like Umbridge is almost unbelievably evil 
I sort of, you kind of buy Voldemort because Voldemort is just like, has to exist in order for these books to make sense. Mm -hmm. Like there has to be that villain. And Umbridge is a more exciting and a more interesting villain overall. But when you get to this scene, you're like, how the fuck is this woman walking around with this much hate in her? And it's... I think this, that's... Having this, having this scene come, like, right out the gate, like, basically the second time we meet her in any serious way, to me makes her, like, she's almost unbelievable. I think that makes her more interesting, in a way, than Voldemort. She's not angling to be top banana. She is clearly very interested in exercising as much power as possible within an existing system. It's the exercise of power over another human being that she relishes in. And Voldemort, she has that in common with Voldemort, but he's like more grandiose about it. To me, she's a familiar character type. She is, she's Percy-ish in a way, or Percy is similar to Umbridge. She blindly worships power and its exercise. So I'm not disagreeing with the type. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. She's a really interesting and a really believable kind of villain. I'm just saying this particular act, like she's torturing children right out the fucking gate. And I find that, like, that's not something you start with as a person in power. So (laughs) either you have this whole backstory of Dolores Umbridge secretly torturing people. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, this isn't something she's doing for the first time. Right. Clearly. She fucking has this quill. And so I have all these questions about, and they haven't come up for me before because I've been so enthralled with her as a villain. But now I'm just kind of thinking, like, what's the backstory here? And the backstory feels, like, increasingly unlikely to me. Like, why does she fucking have this thing? Why did she ever need it? And is she, like, the minister of torture at the Ministry of Magic? I just don't understand, like, where she's coming from in her ability and her, like, having even the implements to carry out this kind of act. Like, is she torturing werewolves? We know that she, like, wrote this legislation. Does Fudge, like, know what kind of a person she is? Is he deliberately... That's my other question. Is he deliberately... That's the question. It's like, how much is... Umbridge following orders and how much is she freelancing? Well, I just think we have to acknowledge that this is fucking crazy. Yeah. Like, this is above and beyond, like, she's a really scary teacher. This is fucking sadistic. Right. And this is a person who has clearly engaged in sadistic acts before. And she's, like, senior at the government. So I just have a lot of questions about, like, what she's been doing up until this point. Yeah. She is literally torturing a child. Like, that's a crazy thing to fucking start with as a villain. I think that's what makes it so shocking, right? I like that, personally. I like it, and I've always liked it. you don't think it's motivated? I just don't know. I don't think we get enough scaffolding for why Dolores Umbridge is the way she is. I think we get enough in terms of, like, her personality, and we kind of understand her motives. But her actions are so extreme. And I just have a lot of concerns about like how did she get to this point how much power does she actually have in the ministry of magic does cornelius fudge know that she is a sadist you know what i mean like is she doing has she been engaging in this kind of behavior before and if not this is a crazy 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 scene yeah i guess it doesn't make any sense for this to be where she starts huh i hadn't really thought about it like that i think Only on this reading am I giving the appropriate amount of credence to how fucking insane this scene is. It is a torture scene. Right. In the middle of the school year. From somebody who has an enormous amount of authority over the lives of children. The first week of the school school year. Yes, it is a torture scene. Actually, I posted about it on Instagram and a couple of people commented and were like, Reading it as an adult, like, it makes you nauseous. It's like a really, really disturbing, sickening event in these books. And I just want to know, like, where is this fucking person coming from? And how has she, like, gotten to where she is as a human? Not, like, how has she risen to power, but, like, what has happened to her as a human being to make her capable of immediately torturing a child? Oh, I don't... 
I don't know. You could ask that about lots of different people who do terrible things who are in positions of authority. Yeah, but, like, J.K. Rowling is leaving out a lot of details about, like, who Umbridge is and why she's like this. Right. This is not exactly a quibble. This is just, like, a set of questions that have arisen to me just on this reading. Like, is she just a sociopath? Like, that's kind of boring. I just don't know, like, like what's her deal? Also, where did she get this pen? She's. This is really challenging. Where did you, like, did she, obviously she got this on Nocturne Alley. (laughs) Yeah. It didn't weird anybody out that, like, the undersecretary to the minister was on Nocturne Alley? Like, all of this, I'm just like, this is dark magic shit. Even if she's not a Voldemort supporter... Where did this fucking pen come from? I mean, it's... Did she make it? It's possible that it was just something the ministry had. You know, they've got, like, freaking shackles in the basement that magically bind people. This could be old. That's true, too. I I don't know. Umbridge is is a really complicated character. She's just a huge mystery to me. Yeah. And I, I sort of liked... I sort of like her as this kind of avatar of mindless and malevolent bureaucracy that just is sort of birthed from yeah and the I machine, totally... like the machine i like that she's just sort of produced by the ministry of magic she, like she just crawls out of that like weird fucking sludge but i can see i, I see where you're coming from yeah i agree with all of that and i remain convinced that she's an excellent villain just this is the first time that i read this scene and was like what the fuck was she doing before this? Yeah. Clearly torturing people. She's very good at it and very experienced, it <laughs> seems like. I'm sure there's a Pottermore bio. That's true. I'm not reading that. <laughs> not canon. On a lighter note, but still like a pretty bloody scene, weirdly. There's a lot of blood in these chapters. We're playing Quidditch again. Ron's on the team. This is a nice arc for Ron. Yeah. Uh, Ron had been getting on my nerves. But there's a lot of interesting characterization of Ron in this book. And I find him very relatable in these chapters. A nice thing about this book is Ron just gets a lot more to do in general. Yeah. He has the opportunity to come out from Harry's shadow to kind of be his own person to interact with the world outside of his relationship with Harry, which we haven't really gotten to see yet. And it is making Ron a much more relatable and palatable character for me. I still don't think he's right for Hermione, (laughs) but I am coming to have a deeper affection for Ron. This Quidditch thing is so hard because like so many other things in Ron's family He has this huge legacy to live up to, and he's just, like, not quite there. But he's trying so hard. He's pretty good. He's okay. He's good enough to get on the team. Well, but he's not the best person that tries out for the team. Right. She says that. Yeah, I know. And she tells his famous best friend, (laughs) which is kind of fucked up. Yeah, but Harry's, like, co-captain, basically. Right. Because Harry does the only thing that matters. And Fred and George are really unsupportive, which... I kind of fault them for. They back off a little when the Slytherins start chanting. Yeah. But they do make Ron really nervous. They're just really skeptical of Ron as like, a everybody in Ron's family is really skeptical of Ron's ability to like do anything. Even though Ron has been through some pretty hardcore shit. He has been. He won the chess game in Sorcerer's Stone. I know. And we haven't given Ron a ton of credit on this podcast and Ron's family doesn't give him a ton of credit and it feels like it might be kind of self-fulfilling. Sometimes he's kind of a nothing burger because everybody, like, expects him to be kind of a nothing burger. Right. So I feel bad that even his own family can't all the way get on board with this, like, pretty cool accomplishment that he's very excited about. And the other thing that's kind of fucked up about this is, like, the only reason he can even try out is because he got this new broom. Which is kind of, we talked about this, like, really, really early in the books where it's, like, the implement you fly on yeah what the fuck such a huge difference in your ability like it's mostly broom there's school brooms right but he only now has like a serviceable quidditch broom (laughs) yeah you're like what uh it's the inequality inherent in your ability to participate in sports 
Way to yeah. go, J.K. Rowling. It's true. That's you know. real in the Muggle world, yep. but it's much more pronounced in Quidditch. Yeah, because you only you have one supply basically. I mean, you have the balls, but and how good your playing implement is is like basically ninety percent of your <laughs> ability to play this sport. Yeah, uh, you'd think they'd go easy on Ron, considering that. The only thing he has to do is prevent them from getting down 150 points. But that's not how they think about this game. No, I know, but it's just like, all right, so all he has to do is prevent 15 goals from being scored. Yeah. That seems simple enough. Well, you'd think. (laughs) I guess if you're terrible, but whatever. So Angelina is our captain now, speaking of Quidditch, and... Pansy Parkinson is straight up racist. Yeah, not only is she a wizard racist, she's like an actual racist. She makes fun of her hair. Right. She says, why would anybody want to look like they had worms coming out of their heads and Angelina has braids? What? I know. It's a, that's a really messed up moment. Poor Angelina. She's facing the glass cliff, right? Because she's finally been promoted to Quidditch captain. But the team is in shambles when Angelina takes over. Well, it's like when the only time you promote, I mean, this, what the glass cliff actually refers to is like the only time you promote a, like a female CEO is when the company is like basically insolvent. Marissa Meyer taking over Yahoo is like an example of the glass cliff. Things are so far gone that. Uh... Right. And so the woman who takes over is going to look like the one who led the organization to be in a shambles instead of just inheriting a mess. And to be fair, like, Angelina's not inheriting a mess. It's a pretty strong team. They're missing one in their minds key player. There's no key players. It's just Harry. But she is inheriting a little bit of a motley Quidditch (laughs) um, situation. Let's talk a little about everybody's homework. There's a lot of it. It's OWL year. And as usual, a lot of it is nonsense. So I have a lot of homework quibbles. Number one. In Professor McGonagall's class, they have to practice vanishing spells. Really critical for whatever fucking reason. Uh, Why is this an important life skill to just make something disappear? Why is any of this an important life skill? They're sorcerers. This is shit they have to be able to do. This is what you learn. (laughs) This is the essence of magic. This is just algebra or whatever. Yeah, they're learning magic. All right, fair enough. Uh, Algebra is important. Here's a question. So they're practicing on fucking snails. They're vanishing snails. Where do the snails go? I don't know. Do they just go to, like, limbo? Do they ever come back? Do you unvanish them? Is it temporary? Are or you, is it forever? Are you just banishing them to oblivion? Like, the void? I don't get this. I what do the snails wonder- experience? Can you vanish a human? I was also wondering, like, why do they practice on living beings? Like, why can't you sit there vanishing, like, a pincushion? All animals were harmed in the making of this book. But really, all of these, like, they so often are practicing transfiguration on animals. And you're like, couldn't you practice this on something that you're not maybe sending to hell? (laughs) Or turning, or you're turning inanimate objects into living creatures a la Cedric with the doggo that he promptly gives to the dragon. Transfiguration seems like not PETA approved. (laughs) Totally insane. Anyone who has any theories on that, please chime in, because we don't really understand the metaphysics of this. Uh, Maybe they just blink out of existence for a while and then return. Uh, I just don't know what that feels like. Yeah, like what does out of existence mean? (sighs) It's, uh, I don't think we can go there. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think we can either. The bow truckles are little nightmares. Speaking of things that are horrifying. Yeah. So they're cute, but if you make them mad, they will gouge out your eyeballs with their sharp little fingers. So have at it, children. Yeah, and she doesn't even <laughs> give them any, like, goggles. Yeah. Or any ideas for how to make sure that they don't get mad. Like, she's just like, if they get mad, they gouge out your eyeballs so don't make them mad and it's like okay no you need to give us more information about what does and doesn't piss off these creatures because we need to be really careful here give them goggles that is pissed off bow treckles that's straight out of a horror film yeah like straight for the eyes these are really weirdly violent chapters like there's (laughs) just an enormous amount of violence Uh, overall she yeah we went we went straight into a guillermo del toro film in these chapters this is like all pan's labyrinth yep with the the fucking blood quill and then i gouge fairies 
apparently Professor Sinistra is the only one that teaches them actual science. Astronomy is their only hard science. They're having to write essays about... Jupiter's moons. Jupiter's moons. But not just, like, what they do magically about, like, the volcanoes on Io. Right. Or, like, like, frozen oceans on Europa. Okay, this is an actual fucking class, guys. What? This is what you're studying, like, interplanetary, like, geology? But no math. (laughs) Yeah. What the fuck? It's true. It's totally true. <laughs> it's just so, I don't, it seems so random. Maybe there's other subjects that we haven't heard about where they're actually learning. Muggle studies sounds like actual sociology. Yeah. So, I I, I don't know. It's just uh, props to Professor Sinistra, who's like, these kids need some actual content knowledge. <laughs> you know, no, no more foolish wand waving. Tell me, how does gravity work? I don't think they're learning about gravity. I think they are mostly learning about the influence of the planets on, like, magic shit. They just happen to have to know about the planets to get there. But you're right. This is actual science. How would wizards know that there are volcanoes on fucking Io without, like, NASA? Yeah, it's a Have they sent someone there? There have to be... If they don't fucking know how subway turnstiles work, how the hell do they know what's on Jupiter's moon? That shit comes from probes. In space. From Muggle space programs. I have no idea how they know this. Um, Maybe the centaurs just, like, know. <laughs> the centaurs are astrophysicists have, like, right. as or, well. No, maybe they just have, like, inherent knowledge of the universe, and we just, like, asked them, like, what's it like up there, guys? And they're like, well, let me tell you about the volcanoes. Nobody is getting enough sleep in this chapter. It's yeah. actually, it's giving me, like, serious flashbacks to, like, my senior year of high school and reminding me... It's really terrible to be in school. I mean, I loved school, but like this amount of homework is just bonkers. And they need to be having one of those like movements like we're having these days where it's like you can't give them more than two hours because children need to go to bed. And in another way, Umbridge is fucking Harry over by keeping him up all night and preventing him from studying anything. That's another kind of torture. I know. She's trying to get him to, to tank his classes. Pretty regressive disciplinary policy in general. Besides just... The bloodletting aspect of it. <laughs> and then... Mail time from Percy. worst mail. Nazi mail. Oh my god. Ron did not see this coming. Ha <laughs> ha! Holy shit. <laughs> As I have hinted above, Dumbledore's regime at Hogwarts may soon be over. Your loyalty, Ron, should be not to him, but to the school and the ministry. I'm very sorry to hear that so far Professor Umbridge is encountering very little cooperation from staff as she strives to make those necessary changes within Hogwarts that the Ministry so ardently desires, although she should find this easier from next week. Again, see The Prophet tomorrow. I shall say only this. A student who shows himself willing to help Professor Umbridge now may be very well placed for head boyship in a couple of years. I am sorry that I was unable to see more of you over the summer. It pains me to criticize our parents, but I am afraid I can no longer live under their roof while they remain mixed up with the dangerous crowd around Dumbledore. If you are writing to Mother at any point, you might tell her that a certain Sturgis Podmore, who is a great friend of Dumbledore's, has recently been sent to Azkaban for trespass at the Ministry. Percy, we've, like, made fun of him a lot as, like, a little authoritarian brown shirt freak but percy is actually gotten there at this point like percy's level of authoritarian curious has like shot through the roof right to just straight up authoritarian it's a really satisfying character arc because it's excellently foreshadowed in prisoner of azkaban which we talked about many episodes ago where he is asking dumbledore why not bring the dementors in the school and you, know, you see Percy's just very unquestioning. About, of authority. Yeah, and what he's willing to do to have rules enforced. Well, it's also interesting because this is kind of one of the first characters we get that kind of goes from innocuous to really bad news. Because mm-hmm. in the early books, like, Percy is a kind of a bother and, like, not fun. But he's not a bad guy until this book. Yeah. And so it is interesting to watch the development of not a major character, but a member of the most important family in the books really, like, lose his way in this very profound and very sad manner. Yes. I feel 
sort of bad for Percy. Like, Percy's a shitbird, and this is all of his own volition. But, you know, it sucks. He's wrong, and he's gonna pay for it. He just has almost no critical thinking skills. I mean, that kind of comes from, like, refusing to be independent-minded because he (laughs) respects the rules so much, but... Well, he doesn't even see that... He's a fuck-up, right? He fucked up with um, Barty Crouch Sr. He should have known something was off. Like, Percy's a key reason why Voldemort has returned to power. And if he had any self-awareness, he would know that he should not be promoted to, like, assistant to the Minister of Magic. And he should know that Fudge is baldly using him as a tool to get at the Weasley family, which are among his political enemies, but he cannot just fucking see that. It's, like, so clear that Percy has been selected by Fudge because of his proximity to Arthur Weasley and Harry Potter. I think that's not the only reason Percy's been selected by Fudge. I think Fudge is very, very aware of Percy's shortcomings and is deliberately manipulating them to get a stooge. Yeah, he's an easy mark. Because Fudge saw what happened with Barty Crouch Jr., saw how totally unquestioning Percy was of Barty Crouch's, like, situation, and he was like, oh, like, this guy will not ask questions. Like, we can do anything with him in the room, Mm, and you will not have a single moment where he's like, uh, is this a good idea? That's a really good point. Fudge is not, like, a tactical genius, but he does have political savvy. Yeah, and he... He's a canny operator, And he sort of knows, even if this thing about Dumbledore is crazy, like the idea that Dumbledore is like deliberately consolidating power, Fudge does have a sense of like what side his bread is buttered on. Dumbledore is a political threat to Fudge. Not because Dumbledore is deliberately threatening him, but because Dumbledore's sway is a really good way for Fudge to be totally undermined. Mm -hmm. So... I think he gets people pretty well and he sort of knows who are his friends and who are his enemies and he's just been driven to a crazy level of paranoia by this unique situation. Hey. I mean, I think he's a bad, bad guy, but I do think he's he's shrewd. Yes, shrewd. That's a good word. So one of the things that Percy tells Ron is to stop associating with Harry, which Harry sort of makes a joke about But you can tell kind of stings because Harry has this whole thought process where he's like, you know, I've stayed in his house. We shared a tent. Like, I I know this guy. Like, this guy has spent a lot of time with me. And the fact that he is now advising Ron that I might be dangerous or violent and that he should try to sever ties with me while still, like, keeping himself safe is really – it upsets him, I think, more than he lets on. And he makes this really interesting comparison that I think is very smart where he says – I guess I understand how serious feels because just like that level of not being believed or of being thought bad is really damaging to your self confidence. Mm-hmm. And I that's like the least of Harry's worries kind of, but you know, he's a teen. He's just kind of coming into himself and to have people basically be saying like he's crazy, he's dangerous, you should sever ties with him. That's going to warp him a little bit. And that's really sad. God, Percy's the worst. Oh, fuck Percy. And poor Ron is in this incredibly uncomfortable position. And he, like, does the right thing. But how shitty. It's still tough to have a family member just totally... It's tough to be estranged from someone in your family, whether or not Ron and Percy saw eye to eye or not. Yeah. It's causing a lot of heartache in the Weasley family. It is. You kind of wonder, like, how did he get this way? And I think having this kind of conflict with someone that you grew up with and, like, you had all the same kind of values instilled, you're just like, is this somewhere in me? Because clearly, like, he had all the same things that I did. So where does this come from? And I think that makes, like, that causes a lot of doubt about everything that you've experienced. Yeah. And, like, where you come from. Before we wrap up, let's talk a little about Sirius. When's your next Hogsmeade weekend, anyway? I was thinking, we got away with a dog disguised at the station, didn't we? I thought I could... No, said Harry and Hermione together very loudly. 
Sirius, didn't you see the Daily Prophet? said Hermione anxiously. Oh, that, said Sirius, grinning. They're always guessing where I am. They haven't really got a clue. Yeah, but we think this time they have, said Harry. Something Malfoy said on the train made us think he knew it was you. And his father was on the platform, Sirius. You know, Lucius Malfoy. So don't come up here, whatever you do. If Malfoy recognizes you again... All right, all right, I've got the point, said Sirius. He looked most displeased. Just an idea. Thought you might like to get together. I would. I just don't want you chucked back in Azkaban, said Harry. There was a pause in which Sirius looked out of the fire at Harry, a crease between his sunken eyes. You're less like your father than I thought, he said finally, a definite coolness in his voice. The risk would have been what made it fun for James. Look, well, I'd better get going. I can hear Creature coming down the stairs, said Sirius, but Harry was sure he was lying. I'll write to tell you a time I can make it back into the fire then, shall I? If you can stand to risk it. There was a tiny pop, and the place where Sirius's head had been was flickering flame once more. Oh, God damn it, Sirius. <laughs> once again, he's being horribly reckless and not caring a whit about his own life and actively courting destruction, in fact. His head is appearing in the fireplace once an hour all night, and he says at least one first year he thinks saw him, but then, like, probably thought he was just a weirdly shaped log or something. But it's still like, bro, like, these are pretty extreme measures to take in the circumstances. Uh, the fire is not that extreme. He just wants to get them on the, the fire phone or whatever. What if somebody sees him? No, you're right. It's um, really likely that someone will see him. And he's like, what I, what I had forgotten about, but just occurred to me, is he's like the most recognizable person in the Wizarding World. His photo was literally everywhere like a year and a half ago. No, yeah, you're right. Like, Presumably it is still everywhere because no, he's, he's still on the lamb. He, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure it is. Well, he's still in the Daily Prophet all the time. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Everybody knows what Sirius looks like and all the Death Eaters know what he looks like as a dog. Right. And he's still taking these crazy risks. And you can just tell that he doesn't really care what happens to him. He's chasing sort of like extreme feelings, like that feeling of like recklessness because he doesn't get to have any feelings at all. His life must be just, like, totally numb. Really boring. Yeah. But he says this really mean thing to Harry. He's like, Sirius is trying to set up this meetup in Hogsmeade. And Harry is like, we're not doing that, bro. Like, no. You're, it's not safe and you're an idiot. And he's like, oh, your dad would have. <laughs> and that's just, like, so mean. Like, Sirius, again, be a grown-up. That's a really cruel thing to say to Harry and Harry handles it really well he's like I'm sorry mate like nah we're not we're not risking that you almost wonder whether Sirius has like an active death wish I don't think Sirius has a death wish but I think he doesn't care if he dies yeah I think that's accurate and what I think is unfair is to involve Harry in that after Harry is somebody who Sirius knows has suffered so much loss. Keep yourself safe for his sake, you know? Nobody ever does anything for Harry's, like, emotional safety. And one of the, the really important things that Sirius could do to, like, preserve Harry's well-being is just, like, stay okay. And it just seems like a really selfish decision not to have any self-preservation instincts, even though there's somebody who is really damaged, who really relies on you for, like, help and solace. And I guess Sirius, he was so patient in Azkaban, and I, I guess his patience has just run out. He was patient in Azkaban. But he was, like, very much biding his time. Yeah. But now I feel like he just, he doesn't think he should have to anymore. Right. Like, the really limited experience of freedom that he's having is, it's just, like, enough of a taste that he's, like, starving now. It must have been crushing. I'm sure. To go from captivity to, like, semi-basically still captivity. Right. 
He also clearly feels extremely emasculated, which... Yeah, there's some toxic masculinity issues galore going on. I, I think Black. there's a I think there's a fair bit, and you know, it's his uh, it's his downfall. But uh, yeah, should hubris be, should be acknowledged. It's true, and um, it's interesting because I hadn't actually thought of it in terms of I think of everything in these terms, but I hadn't actually thought about it around masculinity. But you're right; he's not doing anything Mrs. Weasley isn't already doing. He's making a pretty significant contribution to the Order of the Phoenix by providing its freaking headquarters. And if he was capable of accepting his role as caretaker and mentor to Harry, instead of wanting to go, I'm assuming, like, get into wand duels, then he would he would maybe turn out better. Sirius doesn't want to be confined to the realm of domesticity. Yeah. Is one way of reading this. I think you're totally right. And so I think- I'm going all in on the feminist allegory this episode. Yep. Sorry to our one star. <laughs> um, I think, yes, I totally, totally agree with that. And it's a really good point. Mrs. Weasley is just as integral to the Order of the Phoenix. And... She's not doing much different than Sirius. Yeah, she's like making sure they have a like demon-free place to have meetings. That's uh that's fairly essential. Yeah. And that demon, I'm assuming whatever fucking various creepy crawlies are in the House of Black. I mean, I think part of it is just the psychological like Mrs. Weasley can leave that. Yeah, house. no, that's right. I mean, I actually I have a lot of sympathy for Sirius. I do too, but I think a lot of Sirius is like character flaws that we've seen before exacerbate his situation horribly like this is the a uniquely bad position to put someone with Sirius's challenges in and frankly it's impressive that he doesn't just explode from pent-up rage at his own situation which is horribly unjust yeah Sirius has suffered Probably the greatest injustice of any character in any of these books. I think so, yeah. And it's true that I have to cop to not giving Sirius enough like room in that area because Sirius drives me nuts. But that's not fair because I acknowledge Harry's trauma all the time and Sirius has undergone like the same amount, probably significantly more actually I think trauma. What, I think what Sirius has endured is as bad or worse than anything Harry's endured. Oh, I think worse. I think, yeah, definitely worse. I mean, 12 years in Azkaban. Yeah, and also, it's really sad that Harry's parents are dead, obviously, but Harry doesn't remember his parents. Right. And for Sirius, he lost his best friends. I mean, in some ways, the loss probably stamped Sirius. And was blamed for their death. And was blamed for their death, and is still blamed for their death. So he came out... We came out hard on Sirius, but it's funny how in these books you sometimes lose sight of the the horrifying panorama when you just, like, zoom in up close on one character. Yeah, you kind of forget. And I do tend to forget or, like, downplay what Sirius has gone through, and I think that's fair. I do still think, ideally, he would figure out how to keep himself safe for Harry's sake. Well, maybe somebody needs to be helping Sirius. That's true. Sirius needs just as much help as Harry does, and he's getting just as little. Yeah, everyone is like, they're either ignoring Sirius. Or they're like, pipe down. Or like, keep it together, man. Yeah, he needs somebody to help. He needs like a social worker, basically, to help him with this transition. Why doesn't Lupin live there with him? I don't know. I think that would help a great deal. I don't understand why, like, Lupin can't get a job either. Why don't they just fucking move in together and then instead of this horror show, it's a buddy comedy Yes, about them. it's the odd couple yes. with two dogs. <laughs> two, and a hippogriff. And a hippogriff. Two men and a hippogriff. I would watch that. Me because, too. Because, you know, Lupin is the more fastidious one. Yep. And Sirius is the slob. Mm-hmm. It's true. Uh, That's right, right? That's probably right. I think that's right. Except Lupin's kind of shabby, but that's because he turns into a wolf. (laughs) Lupin has to keep things really, really in order because he is so destructive as a wolf. (laughs) So overall, yeah, I think he would be the neat one. So anyway, Sirius has this intel. So he shares this information that the reason they're not allowed to learn defensive spells is because Fudge thinks Dumbledore is an 
is assembling a student army, which Fudge's level of paranoia has gotten absolutely fucking crazy. Dumbledore, I mean, doesn't really even have the presence at this school or the wherewithal to like <laughs> organize these kids. I mean, yeah, this is totally out of bounds. Fudge is just gone nuts. Off he's, the deep end. Yeah. Um, well, the level of denial he's in about the return of Voldemort, I think, is what's driving this incredibly erratic, bizarre set of beliefs. Because I think he sort of knows that something really awry is happening. Yeah, he knows something's off, and but Dumbledore is his stand-in for that. Because right. Because he's unwilling to grapple with, with the truth. So... Yeah, in that way, like, kind of psychologically, you kind of get it. But this is just a crazy thing for him to believe is happening. Yeah, it's wild. And the hilarious thing is he, like, sets it in motion. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, um... I'd forgotten that he thought this Like, that the Dumbledore's earlier. army mm-hmm. concept comes um, from, from Fudge. From Fudge, yeah. yeah. Well, you, uh... You get what you wish for, I guess. In, in a way, um... Yeah, Fudge has set himself a trap that autocrats often do, which is that by trying to eliminate the possibility of rebellion, you create the seeds for it. Who's your unsung hero? My unsung heroes are Ernie McMillan and Luna Lovegood. Mostly Luna Lovegood, but also Ernie McMillan. Because they are, they're the first two people that aren't Ron and Hermione to come up to Harry and affirmatively say... We believe you about Lord Voldemort. We've got your back. Luna's the first. And then later, Ernie McMillan, who's not particularly close with Harry and doesn't have to do that. No. It's sad because Ernie gets way more credence than Luna because everybody's like, yeah, well, of course Luna believes you. She's a fucking weirdo. And he's a prefect. And he's a prefect. So yeah, institutional weight. So Harry is building a power base in Hogwarts. Mine is Cho Chang. Because she really does Harry a solid in the Ellery. She, like, covers for him when um, Filch wants to see the letter he sent. And she's just, like, pretty chill and understanding and kind, considering what she must have been going through the past several months. She um, believes Harry and trusts him and understands that he would have saved Cedric if he could have and doesn't you know I just think that there that could have gone a lot of ways and most of them are bad and Cho is being really a stand-up person yeah I agree and um she seems like funny and smart I get why Harry's into her and she thinks Ron is bullshit which she and I could have a club This week's episode is brought to you by Madame Malkin's Robes for All Occasion. See our ad in the Daily Prophet. I think that's actually a repeat sponsor, but... Well, then we've gotten a lot of galleons from them. (laughs) It's true, yeah. They're paying for this whole show. Good old Madame Malkin's. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. You can find us across several social media platforms if you are so inclined. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also send us emails at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. We check them super regularly and uh, love them and we get great stuff from you guys. Super good emails this week. I think we're going to have to do a mailbag soon because y'all are like coming through. And yeah, that's it. So next week... We are reading the chapters called The Hogwarts High Inquisitor and In the Hogshead from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Nobody expects the Hogwarts Inquisition. Oh, God. That's going to be the Easter egg, you guys. Almost certainly, but now (laughs) I've spoiled it. Oh, well, uh, it'll still be funny. Thanks, amigos. She was ignoring the Slytherins, who had now set up a chant of Gryffindor are losers! Gryffindor are losers! Now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot! Make like a tree and leave! You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong! All right then, leave! And take your book with you! Shall we do Snape stuff first?
said Ron, dipping his quill into his ink. The properties of Moonstone and its uses in potion making, he muttered, writing the words across the top of his parchment as he spoke them. There, he underlined the title, then looked up expectantly at Hermione. So, what are the properties of Moonstone and its uses in potion-making? The Moonstone is an awesome boulder, a million years old or even older. Deep in these caves, the meteor hides. Though no explorer has found the place of the legendary rock from space. We've studied its fragments for many an hour and discovered it increases a Pokémon's power. And that is why the attackers are here. They've come to take the Moonstone, or so I fear. The Moonstone? Ever since I was a little boy, I've believed the Pokémon came to Earth from outer space. From, from outer, outer space? Yes. And where, you ask, is the spacecraft that brought them to Earth? In this cave. It's the Moonstone. It sure is an original theory. Harry's Moonstone essay was handed back to him with a large, spiky black D scrawled in an upper corner.